This morning I'm going to read from the scriptures, and I just want you to listen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And he so, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according, in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Open our eyes. Open our ears, we may see what we have in this text, we may hear the Spirit's voice still speaking through these ancient words, that our lives might be transformed by what we see and hear, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us his Spirit would be glorified in us. In his name we pray, and let all his people say, Amen. Would you now open your Bibles or scroll to Romans chapter 8 as we continue a series on new life in Christ. Romans 8, one of the great chapters of the Bible. And today we're going to look at just the first of three paragraphs that Pastor Mike read. Verses 1 through 4, where the writer, the Apostle Paul, says something new. Something new about new life in Christ. Something he has not said in the previous chapters that we have looked at for a few months. Something strikingly new. And we'll get to it. But first, I want to see what he says by way of review. In these four verses, the apostle not only introduces a new angle, but he, in a few short lines, manages to recapitulate, review what he's already said, and we'll begin that right there, looking at how he weaves together threads that we've already examined into the fabric 
of Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the true story of the old pastor in the Philippines, a much-loved man of God who carried the burden of a secret sin that he had committed many years earlier. He had repented, but still did not have peace, uh, a sense of God's forgiveness. And in his congregation, there was a woman, a godly woman, who claimed to have visions in which she spoke to Christ and Christ spoke to her. The priest or pastor was a a little skeptical about this, uh, but to test her, he said, the next time you speak with Christ, I want you to ask him what sin your pastor committed back in seminary days. And a few weeks later, pastor asked her, well, has Christ visited you in your dreams? She said, yes, he has. And did you ask him what sin I committed when I was in seminary? She said, yes, I did. Well, what did he say? He said, I don't remember. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This almost too good to be true truth. According to the gospel, according to Paul in the book of Romans. We deserve God's wrath, but somebody else endured God's wrath in our place. We were sinners, but he was made sin for us. We were guilty But the guiltless one took upon himself our guilt. We deserve condemnation, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen again to some of what Paul has already said. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice. Romans 5.6, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, verse 9, we've been justified freely by his blood. All this we've seen, Paul sums it up in two words. No condemnation. There is now, now, no condemnation. This is a gospel blessing that we don't have to wait for. We have it right now. Suppose that you're on trial in a courtroom for a capital offense. Your life hangs in the balance. A guilty verdict will mean death. A non-guilty verdict will mean freedom and life. And suppose the judge says to you, look, I can postpone this trial and the verdict for a few years. Let you go out and prove yourself to the court by your life. We'll assign you a parole officer who will watch your every move. And then we'll have the trial and base the verdict on whether your behavior was satisfactory or not. 
Or, the judge continues, I can acquit you right now, decisively, irrevocably, and release you so that you can go out and live a free, joyful, loving life that shows that you're no longer a rebellious, crime-loving offender, even though you have been. Now that would be good news. Now, no condemnation. Do you sense that this is not only immensely important, but immensely practical? Some people might say, well, okay, I, I get that this has got to be important. It's in the Bible, after all, and the preacher did say that Romans 8 is one of the great chapters of the Bible, but practical, I, I don't know. I don't see it. I've got problems with my body, with my marriage, with my, my kids. What does the Bible have to say about these things? That's what I really want to hear about. This Roman stuff doesn't scratch where I itch. Well, even so, my pastor says it is 10,000 times more valuable than any other counsel you could get. <laughs> because eternity is so long and this life is so short that even if you lived 85 years and all of them were miserable, compare that to 85 million ages in the presence of God, with no condemnation. But the pastor goes on to say, if you want some practical benefits for here and now, for your concerns about your body, your marriage, your kids, I'll give you a few. When you suffer physical pain and it lasts a long time and it seems to get worse instead of better and that it might even lead to your death, the accuser comes says you're suffering because you're under condemnation. It's punishment. You're under God's wrath. Maybe it's the devil who says this. Maybe it's your own um, guilty conscience. Maybe it's Job's friends. How are you going to survive that assault? Romans 8 verse 1. No condemnation. No, no. You're wrong, accuser. Get out of my mind. I have it from God's word, that I'm not under condemnation anymore. Or suppose that you feel disappointed or even deeply wronged in your marriage. Where are you going to find the moral power to forgive and keep on loving and wooing and hoping and, and not resort, resort to uh, returning evil for evil? Answer? Romans 8, verse 1. <laughs> you remind yourself again and again that even though you deserve condemnation, in Christ there is no condemnation. Your future is guaranteed, a future of everlasting joy. And out of gratitude to God, you will draw up buckets of mercy for your spouse. Because you've received mercy. What are you going to do if your kids break your heart? Chances are you'll find ample opportunity to decide it was your fault. 
And you'll never be able to sort that out. Only God can. So how will you keep going? How will you keep loving? Well, the answer is Romans 8, verse 1. In the end, you don't have to sort it out. You don't have to parse how much is the kid's responsibility, how much is your responsibility, because your standing with God does not hang on how perfect a parent you were or where that dividing line of responsibility is. You're standing before God as a loved child, a forgiven one. Is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with that freedom, you will be able to humble yourself before your children, trust that God has them in his grip. And we could multiply examples. No condemnation and peer pressure. No condemnation and sexual temptation. No condemnation and racism. No condemnation in pride and on and on. The practical implications of this verse are endless. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one thread from chapters 1 through 7 that Paul weaves into the fabric of this paragraph. Here's another. What the law, verse 3, what the law was powerless to do, the law with its hundreds of commands and prohibitions, and yes, I did say hundreds. There are more than the big ten, you know. The Ten Commandments would give us trouble enough. Just remembering them sometimes is hard. I'm not going to embarrass myself or you by asking if you can recite them all. I do remember that a kid, a student, was asked to list the Ten Commandments in any order. And he said, okay, 3, 6, 1, 8, 4, 5, 9, 2, 10, and 7. <laughs> now, keep them in mind, that's hard. Doing them, that's, that's hard. But the law is more than the Ten Commandments. It contains, according to rabbinic tradition, 248 positive commands, 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year, 613 laws in all. Is it good stuff? Paul thought so. The law is holy and just and good, he wrote in chapter 7. But the law cannot make anybody right with God what the law was powerless to do. Last few weeks in chapter 7, we've seen what the law does do and does very well. It exposes our sin. It exposes our need for justification and salvation. But it cannot confer salvation and justification. The law can't make anybody right with God. Well, this is not the new material in Romans 8, 1 through 4. We've seen this before. The law is good. The law is flawless. Sin is utterly sinful. Just that the law can't solve our sin problem because we're incapable of keeping it. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news, the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. 
what the law was powerless to do, coming back to verse 3, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man. I'm going to pause to say that Paul is very careful in his language here. He doesn't say that Christ was like a man. Christ was a man, but he was sinless. And so Paul says, in the likeness of sinful man, to deal with our sin problem. What the law couldn't do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He obeyed the law's commands perfectly. He satisfied the law's demands completely, and he paid the law's consequences for you and for me. Amazing grace. I'm inclined to sing it. Maybe you know it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And we'll never get tired of talking about it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first Oh, we can stop right there, but I didn't get to the new stuff yet. No condemnation. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son. That's, that's the review that we've seen. Did you hear what's new in this paragraph? I'll give you a big hint. What's new is not an it, but a person. Verse 1 again, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In the first seven chapters of Romans, the Spirit is mentioned twice. In chapter 8, 19 times. In this great chapter, the Apostle makes explicit what has only been implied prior to this. New life in Christ is life in the Spirit. Life motivated by the Spirit life empowered by the Spirit. Not only did God's Son die for us, God's Spirit lives in us. 
Not only was sin's penalty paid by the Son of God, but sin's power is broken by the Spirit of God indwelling us. If Paul only wanted to recap what he's already said, we might expect verse 1 to read something like this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ took that condemnation in our place on the cross. But there is more to our salvation than no condemnation. More to our salvation than having our penalty paid and being declared righteous in God's sight. Because God is determined not only to forgive us, but to change us. So by His Spirit, He takes up residence in our hearts and begins a lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification. Most of what we've read about and heard about so far in Romans is about justification, being declared just or acquitted in heaven's court. But God is also in the business of sanctifying us, making us holy, making us more like his son. It's been a while since I've told the story of my father's conversion. Some of you will remember it. My dad was literally a godless man, raised without any church involvement at all. My mom, who was a Christian, knew that she shouldn't marry him, but she felt like she was probably not going to get another chance, and so when he said, would you marry me, she said yes. The first few years of their marriage were pretty difficult. My dad would not come to church, not even on Christmas and Easter. He just had nothing to do with church, God, the Bible. He was an alcoholic. He was addicted to nicotine. He was a violent-tempered man. He could be gentle, but especially when drunk, better stay out of the way. He, uh, he was so desperate that uh, in his misery that a couple of times he, he tried to commit suicide. One time he had a gun pointed at his head, but was too drunk to realize it was not loaded. Well, my mom would have us kids pray regularly for dad's conversion. And um, didn't seem to make any difference until one Sunday morning as she was taking us to church, my father said, I may see you there later. <laughs> didn't know what to make of that. Well, it turns out that while we were at Sunday school and church, my father got down on his knees beside his bed and cried out to a Savior that he only half believed in. God, Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. Come into my life. And God answered that prayer. And although my father did not come to the worship service that morning, he did come to the Sunday evening service. And when our pastor gave a gospel invitation, as he did after every service, no matter what the topic of the sermon. <laughs> my father got out of his seat in the back and started to walk down the aisle. My pastor, who, along with others in our church family, had prayed for years for my father's conversion, came down, met him halfway up the aisle, embraced him. People were crying everywhere. I'm this close right now. So what happened? My dad got off his knees a changed man. He wasn't the same old John Langley just forgiven. 
he'd begun to experience new life in Christ. God mercifully broke his addiction to alcohol. My father had been a a four-pack-a-day cigarette smoker, quit smoking overnight. He had never read a book as an adult, dropped out of school in eighth grade, probably never had read, read a book since then. He read through the Bible cover to cover in the King James Version in four months. So hungry he was for whatever God could give him to feed this new life in Christ. He became a fixture at our church, was there every time the doors were open, served in a variety of capacities. He was a new creature. Now, change is not that dramatic for everybody who finds new life in Christ. Sometimes, usually, change is gradual. And after decades of being a Christian, my dad still had areas that God needed to work on. So does his preacher's son. But the point is, the gospel does not leave us forgiven, but otherwise unchanged. The gospel transforms us. Paul makes this point by using the concept of spiritual laws. Have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Is the opening line of a famous gospel tract, just as there are laws that govern the physical universe, so there are laws that govern our relationship with God. That's how that gospel tract reads. Well, in Romans 8, we see two spiritual laws. One, the law of sin and death, verse 2. There's a law, a spiritual principle that is as powerful as any physical law as pervasive as the law of gravity. And unless something intervenes, we're all pulled, held by gravity. And unless somebody intervenes, we're all subject to the law of sin and death. We do what we ought not do. We fail to do what we ought to do. We're rebellious, foolish, powerless to change ourselves, and so sin drags us down toward death. Oh, we're capable of small changes, especially if you have a good upbringing and a supportive culture and family. You can be made a more respectable sinner, more sophisticated sinner. You can be kind of like people with a glider or a hot air balloon who appear to be defying gravity, but in fact, gravity still holds them. But then, the Spirit of God comes in, and a new law operates, the law of the life-giving Spirit. Rocket fuel that frees us from sin's gravity. I know, it's not a perfect analogy. The Holy Spirit isn't really like rocket fuel. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and salvation is like finding a lost coin. The point is that there is a spiritual law here. 
and it frees us from the law of sin and death. In the last part of this paragraph, Paul goes back to using the word law in its normal sense, that of a moral code, verse 4. All this is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to our sinful nature or our flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has a high moral standard. The ten... The 613, all the laws adjusted in their application for life in a different culture, in a different dispensation. But still, we all fall short of it, and now the spirit of the lawgiver is inside of us. Enabling us to live it. In the rest of this great chapter, we're going to spend several weeks in Romans 8. We'll unpack this. But for now, um, this illustration. And, and again, I, I've used this before. Some of you might remember it. True story. A man driving in the country had his attention diverted from this long, straight, boring road by what, out of the corner of his eye, looked like a man at that farmhouse pumping water like somebody supernatural. He, he slowed down and looked, and sure enough, there's a man going impossibly fast, pumping water. And so he actually drove partway up the farmer's driveway to get a closer look, and as he did so, he realized that the man was a wooden cutout attached to a pump that presumably was running on electricity. The man wasn't pumping the water. The water was pumping the man. Before Christ, Paul says, I tried really hard, I tried really hard, I tried really hard to keep the law, to obey God, to please God. Now he's got a new power within. Spirit. Spirit. Would you stand for a closing word of prayer? Oh, Father, no condemnation. The Holy Spirit's sanctifying presence, how infinitely precious these gospel treasures are. The wretchedness and bewilderment of chapter 7 will not be our experience forever. You've not only saved us from the penalty of sin on the cross, but you have also undertaken to save us from the power of sin through your Spirit. You've, you've given us sanctification along with justification, and we welcome them both with an open heart. Come, Holy Spirit. Create new life in us today and every day. Fill us, we pray. Produce your sweet fruit in us now. 
Prove in us your power over sin and lead us in new paths of righteousness. We long to walk in them. And we pray in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.